0: Welcome to AFSPA Talks, a production of the American Foreign Service Protective Association with Chief Operating Officer Kyle Longton. Be sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast channel. Enjoy the episode.
1: This episode contains discussion of sensitive topics including suicide and depression and may not be appropriate for all listeners. If you or someone you know are struggling, please call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at
0: 1-800-273-8255.
1: Hannah, it's our first podcast, finally.
0: Finally, we're here. I'm so excited, Kyle.
1: I'm excited. Too. We should probably tell people a little bit about ourselves and the podcast. I'm Kyle Longton. I'm the Chief Operating Officer at AFSPA, and you are...
0: I'm Hannah Wolfart. I'm the junior communications coordinator at AFSPA.
1: And this is AFSPA Talks. This is a podcast that AFSPA is bringing you ideally two to three times a month. And our goal here is to educate members about health and wellness issues, and also let you know what programs and benefits we offer to you, our members, to help support you. Um, Hannah, we want to hear from people, right?
0: We want to hear from people and we want to engage with people as much as possible, which is why podcasting is the way to go.
1: Absolutely. Okay. So why a podcast?
0: A podcast, because that's the best way for us to engage with our members and them to engage back with us. um, So using social media and the different tools that we have, we are going to put our podcast out there for our to engage with our members. And then we want to hear from you guys as well. So Respond to us, comment, post, subscribe. Let us know how we're doing on the podcast end, and we can improve ourselves. But we have a lot of great conversations lined up for everybody, and that makes me excited.
1: That I'm I'm excited too. So I'll I'll, I'll repeat what Hannah said. Please, if you like the episode, subscribe, share, tell your friends. Let us know what you think on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. You can find us at AFSPA Cares or just by searching for AFSPA. Um, and we'd love to know what you think. We're hoping, as I said, to bring this to you about two to three um, programs each month. Um, Hannah has a great background, so all the success that we have, she is responsible for. Um, I'm just going to be here talking a little bit about um, uh, just guiding us through the discussion and learning as we go, which I hope you will as well. Um, And our focus, we hope to tie each episode into either our our monthly or annual um, theme or some special event that's coming up. And so our first program is going to take a focus on mental wellness. And uh, part of this is because our theme for 2020 and now 2021 has been mental wellness leads to better physical health. Um, it's also May is Mental Health Awareness Month. And um, we've also seen a, a big uptick in um mental wellness and mental treatment, mental health treatment over the last year. So, um, Hannah, what, how has the last year been for you?
0: Yeah, it's been a challenge. I mean, as I think it has been for everybody, just going from, you know, regular life in the regular world to a complete lockdown and shutdown, having to stay inside the house. I think that obstacles definitely increased within the past year. Um, And I myself have experienced issues with depression and anxiety and different mental health issues. And as those around me have as well. And I think COVID kind of increased those obstacles for everybody, uh, which made it challenging, but thankfully we have programs to help as you're going to get into. And there's a way, you know, there's a way up and out for everybody.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, And I know that, that we've seen, a greater need this last year. I know in my own life that the anxiety, the depression, the, the I've, I've been on a short fuse. Um, and we've seen that with, with our colleagues and our members that people who had this boundary between work and life, it's gone. There's at least not a physical boundary there. And you may have your partner home and they may be like me, a loud talker. And so having a, a phone call is a, a challenge and certainly a video meeting, or you've got the kids home uh, and you're trying to teach them or keep them entertained while also doing your job. Um, full-time and you're pulled in a lot of different directions um, and it's it, it's a big challenge um, and I, I know it has been in my life and for a lot of our members and you mentioned having to stay in the house um, you know I think our members worldwide have faced a shutdown at one time or another some of them are still facing that particularly overseas um, and and so treatment wasn't as easy to get as it used to be or at least we thought that was the case. Um, luckily you know I we we if there's one good thing, it's that this pandemic hit now when technology is so accessible, and we're doing this over Zoom, um, having our conversation. But um, I saw some stats, and we had a huge increase in the utilization of telehealth and telemedicine last year. It's so over two thousand percent increase in the number of members using that that option, and we've also saw a trend throughout last year and continuing to this year that now 53% of our telemedicine claims are for behavioral health needs. I will say I'm very glad that people are getting the, having access to that care um, and getting the help that they, they need. Um, and if they're not, we're going to talk about some of the programs we've got to to support them via this podcast. That's our goal, right?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. In giving out information to our members and to anybody who wants to listen, um, and letting them know that the resources are available to them. And all they have to do is, you know, look for them. Or in this case, they're given right to them.
1: Yep, absolutely. And and we've got, you know, if if engaging with somebody over Zoom or another platform isn't for our members, we've got other programs to help. Um, we have able to, which is actually, it's, it's engaging with a person. It's got some online tools. We're going to talk about that in a later episode coming up. Also got some telephonic coaching, some online coaching, self-directed that's available. We also have a program called My Strength, and that's one of our that's one thing that we're going to dive deeper into today. It is self-directed. We have some basic stats about how many members have used the program, and in fact, we sent information out to members in December of last year about this program and saw more than 170 register in December alone. That um, more than doubled the the utilization just last year. Um, so we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about when members might want to use it, how it helps, how it works, and does it work, um, and and why people are using it. So um, we've got a great guest to talk about um, that with, and she's been involved in shaping that as well as a number of other pieces. Dr. Julia Hoffman is a psychologist and the VP of Mental Health Strategy at TeleDoc Health. um, And TeleDoc identifies themselves. We've got a partnership with them, a company empowering people everywhere to live their healthiest lives. Um, Julia is a licensed clinical psychologist um, who attended Stanford and got her PsyD in clinical psychology at the PGSP Stanford PsyD Consortium and completed a fellowship at Yale University School of Medicine. Um, She has a great background in working in the federal arena as well. She was previously the National Director of Mobile Health at the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs and a faculty affiliate at the National Center for Telehealth and Technology, which is a defense center of excellence. Um, She's been at the forefront of technology and we'll talk more about that when we talk with her, um, leading the creation evaluation and broad international dissemination of a lot of the technology based behavioral tools. And she founded and scaled mobile development for behavioral health at both uh, Department of Defense and VA and has been honored for these efforts by former President Barack Obama, the U.S. House of Representatives, the Federal Communications Commission, the American Telemedicine Association, the American Psychological Association. And she was also recognized as a top 25 emerging leader by modern healthcare and featured as one of the 2020 Women of Influence by the Silicon Valley Business Journal. I first had the opportunity to meet Julia um, about two years ago when um, she was working for Lavango, which is now part of Teladoc, and we are very fortunate to have her with us today. Um, so Julia, um, welcome to the Talks. You are our very first guest. Thank you so much for having me. We're glad to have you here as we're, we're focused on mental wellness, and we'll have an opportunity to talk about technology as well as trauma areas of expertise for you. But First, I want to jump in and just talk about the last year or really about almost now the last year and a half. Um, Our members have always been ahead of of many others and ahead of the curve in recognizing the need for behavioral health care and seeking it out. But our stats from last year showed that behavioral health was actually the only major category, treatment category, in which we saw an increase, a a huge increase. We saw 20% decreases in in something like inpatient surgery and a 22% increase in behavioral health utilization. Um, depression, anxiety, and more. Can you tell us uh, some more about national trends both before the pandemic and since it has hit?
2: Yeah, it's been an incredible ride for the past year um, in in the way that the tides have in some ways shifted, and in other ways, you know, we've just exacerbated themes that were already present. Prior to the pandemic, uh, we had a massive mental health epidemic in this country a suicide epidemic, a depression and anxiety epidemic, a burnout epidemic, an opioid epidemic. It sort of depends, however you want to slice it. We have mental health and substance use um, challenges that have been growing and growing and growing. And in fact, every other cause of mortality. Has decreased over the past two decades, except for those that are related to mental health concerns and especially suicide. Um, so, from that context, uh, we had this massive event that we've all experienced together of this global pandemic shutdown of all of our natural sort of services and routines. Um, All of the things that keep us mentally healthy, including going to work, going to the grocery store. These are normal everyday people things that just keep us feeling like everyday people. Um, And with that, we saw two things. Number one, a massive exacerbation of symptoms, meaning even people who were not experiencing mental health problems before Really found that they were somewhere between stressed and sort of a subclinical, not quite officially diagnosable space, all the way up through really significant clinical challenges. So, we also have people spending a lot more time at home, listless, and with somewhat less to do than usual. And that has also increased overall the amount of substance use. And so, there's a sort of a cycle there where increased substance use even if it's just a couple of drinks or something after work every day sort of adds up over time and and depletes people's natural resources simultaneously our healthcare system had to refocus and and shift to really be attending to what is most urgent and who really needs to be here right now mm-hmm. um which ultimately was largely about covid also about diverting Uh, providers wherever possible to have them serve this massive need related to COVID-19. And so, you know, anything in hospitals and healthcare systems that was not seen as either urgent, uh, absolutely necessary, um, you know, it it was sort of put off. And so uh, I think what you're seeing are absolutely aligned with the rest of the nation right now. I think what remains to be seen is what 2022 will look like, you know, God willing, we're past all of this. We're back to some normal way of life. Um, and, and back out able to, to do the things we would usually do. I don't know if what we're going to see is a huge amount of pent up demand in those areas like surgeries and stuff like that. What I can tell you from my own view, my own expertise is we are for sure going to be living with this, um, expanded mental health need for quite some time.
1: So, and, and I've been to to industry conferences where they've talked about, you know, there's a, 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 the next pandemic is going to be mental health, but what what you started out by saying was that, no, that's been here. That's been with us. Um, and, and is it that there's a, a stigma falling away from it now that people are seeking treatment or has it just been exacerbated that much more? Um, Over the last year.
2: Yeah, it's a lot of things. I think both of those things and then some. So, first of all, we've just got more symptoms floating around. We've got people who are navigating, you know, situationally based uh, mental health concerns like grief. That's trauma, right? These are things that have hit more of us in the past year. And I've been focused right now on COVID 19, but there's been a tremendous amount going on in. Uh, the U.S. broadly, um, including everything from, you know, uh, racially um, charged protests and the reactions to those and the reasons for them um, have been weighing heavy on much of the country. We've got political disagreements that have been there sort of in the ether. Um, And so there's just a lot that has been weighing on people that may in some cases be new there's also been huge amounts of new parenting challenges. There have been huge amounts of uh, new um, sort of loneliness, for, mm-hmm. especially for older folks who may not have access to um, others while they were sort of waiting out the worst of the COVID-19 crisis. So number one, absolutely, we're seeing an exacerbation of symptoms, and that's just going to continue to uh, need to be dealt with because it turns out once you trigger some of these issues, they stick with you until you work them out. Sort of the only way out is through. In a lot of these cases, it's unpleasant and and you kind of wish it would just resolve on its own. And sometimes it will, and sometimes it won't. The second issue though, oh, sorry. The the second issue um, in terms of that mental health needs sticking around, I do think that there's been a reduction in stigma. I think that even in venues where you don't generally see people talking about mental health and stress, that it has been... You know, absolutely featured and foremost in people's minds, and just the amount of conversation about it has driven a new, uh, a new acceptance, especially among some generations where it typically hasn't been as big of a piece of the puzzle. And then the final piece is, um, you know, I have kids, but actually I remember this from when I was a kid. You get hurt, you fall down, you skin your knee, kind of pick yourself up, dust yourself off. Go inside, find your mom, and then start to cry. Right. Um, the, the reality is we are still wound so tight. This isn't over. And there are so many of us that are holding on to this sort of survival mode, which helps us, which is there literally to help us survive. However, it is not intended for long-term use. Right.
0: Yeah. And
2: so as soon as we let go and breathe out, I'm waiting for. The wave that comes with the small amount of relief and then the recognition of the additional layers of grief for what we've all just been through um, together or, or individually.
1: Now, you mentioned that there's there's new challenges with parenting and that we're also seeing new, new challenges for children themselves. I mean, I've, I've read things about suicide ideation appearing in children as young as five. Um, and we have seen a lot of questions and a lot of response from our members when we put out what guidance there is what, that we can offer about how to, people can help their children and adolescents who are, are facing these challenges and trying to deal with them. What are you seeing in these age groups? And, and is there anything that you can offer to parents in terms of, um, or, or even though the the teens who might be listening in terms of how to to approach this with each other?
2: Right. Well, uh, the first thing that I would say is uh, if you would, if we had talked about this a year and a half ago, I would have said to you, you know, Kyle, absolutely. This is a massive problem that we're facing as a country that, you know, suicide is the second leading cause of death for children ages 10 to 18. That is crazy to me. Um, And that's a relatively new phenomenon that was not the case 20 years ago. And so There is a lot to unpack there and that has been looked at by experts in the field trying to understand what is driving this. Is it, you know, suicide, actually, we we understand to have some sort of contagion effect, right? So if you know somebody who has died by suicide, you are incrementally more likely to die by suicide yourself. And so you can see how it grows exponentially, just the availability sort of bias there. I know somebody, it doesn't seem that completely unimaginable. And that's what's happening to kids. They're also faced with violence of various other kinds. We've got this simultaneous, um, you know, issue around mass shootings in schools. There's just a lot more available kind of scary context for children and teens now. Um, So the fact that we added on to that, Social isolation, that's completely age inappropriate, especially depending on, you know, certain specific age groups. Um, I have a five-year-old. Her whole job, as far as I'm concerned, this year at school was to learn how to socialize. And uh, she hasn't gotten that here at homeschool with me. So, you know, we've got um, different ages that's going to be hitting differently. There is currently data that shows that there's been an increase in pretty much everything bad for children and teens. So self-inflicted difficulties like um, suicide, certainly, but also just self-injurious behavior that's not actually, so things like um, cutting that kind of stuff have increased. Um, The age at which, as you highlighted, the age at which those um, symptoms and thoughts are coming up is decreasing all the time, which is horribly, horribly upsetting to think about. and simultaneously we're taking away all of the things that kids tend to use for sort of support the regular schedule, all of the thing, ask any parent who's read any parenting book. They know the things that you have to do to keep kids sort of emotionally healthy. And that includes all of the stuff that we're not doing this year. So it's not that big of a surprise that kids are struggling. Um, that said, uh in terms of what to say to teens or what teens or, or kids should say to others, I would say, you know, speaking to the, to the children and the teens, it's find somebody safe to talk to don't rely on social media. Don't rely on peers. If, if that's your, your first thought Um, peers are amazing but there are some problems that actually fall into the category of adult problems. I know I used to treat teens when I was in a, in clinical practice and, you know, it's hard for teens to believe that adults know anything sometimes, <laughs> but there are places where adults can be helpful. So find your helpful ones, whether those are people at your school or hopefully in your home. Um, as far as what parents can do, recognize that the way that psychological symptoms look is different at every age right? So with a two-year-old, it might be biting that you weren't seeing before really sort of physical, uh, Mm -hmm. manifestations of what's going on inside, um, with school age kids, it can just be general irritability. It can be sensitivity that you haven't really seen before. Um, and with teens, although it can also be those, I don't, I don't generally think of teens as biting anybody, but certainly the irritability could still be on the table. Um, Withdrawal is a huge symptom. I know we're going to talk about PTSD in a little while, but um, as you mentioned, but um, even setting aside whether or not something is actually trauma, what you see first of all in most mental health conditions is withdrawal and avoidance. I I don't want to open the mail. I don't want to. I I feel like I can't do the dishes. I can't take out the garbage. And for kids. You know you have to translate that onto their experience and the stuff that they avoid. So I would say parents be on the lookout for things other than just a direct conversation from a from a teen or a kid saying, "I am struggling in this way, I need help." And then if you do get that message, then the worst thing to do is to berate or to minimize. And instead, at whatever age-appropriate way, you can
0: connect,
2: collaborate, Empathize, those are those are the keys. It's it's providing a safe place to have the conversation that needs to be had.
1: I think that's that that's great um, information because it also helps remove any stigma that might be there for the, the teen or the child who's experiencing this, even if they don't know that it should be there. Right. Um and it it can can also it, it might be a struggle because parents might be dealing with their own challenges while trying to support their children who are dealing with their own challenges. Um, so I think providing that open open dialogue, just being open to it, it is a great great advice um, and, and having that safe space and, and not turning to peers if, if it's a, a child or a teen, absolutely. Um, you mentioned trauma and this is, this is an area of your expertise and it's actually one of the things we talked about when you and I first met a few years ago um, and particularly your work on uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. A lot of us think of PTSD as limited to the military, the active duty military or the veteran population, people who've spent time in conflict zones. Um, But in more recent conversations, I've learned from you, it's broader than that. So when we're talking about trauma, what are we talking about?
2: Yeah. So it's a great question because I think that, um, you know, our field, psychology evolves just like the rest of science, just like the rest of the world. And so, uh, you know, people would be within their rights to assume that PTSD is a construct that's for military service members and veterans, because that is where it started, right? is combat fatigue and then sort of the, the title evolved over time. However, um, at this point, it's very clearly recognized that trauma can actually be an acute based on an acute event or based on chronic events. And it has nothing to do with military service. It just so happens that in military service, you're much more likely to be faced with a uh, real or imagined death or harm to yourself or someone you care about. Um, so the technical definition of trauma is that you have to have something happen, something specific that counts as traumatic. I'll talk about that in a second. And then you have to have the symptoms that are resulting From that, So symptoms that you have now that you didn't have before that event. Now, how we define a traumatic event has also evolved, but essentially it's not something like I had a difficult podcast interview. I was super stressed and sweating buckets the whole time. It was traumatic. That's not traumatic. That's just a bad day.
1: (laughs) And and uh, should you be clear, that's not happening to either of us right now on this this podcast. We're both (laughs) fresh and relaxed. Yes.
2: Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, um, so real trauma is about, you know, real or imagined, uh, death or harm that is, that is meaningful. That comes from a specific event to, to you. So if I, if I am, uh, viewing it, um, if I see someone I care about go through a harm, physically harmful, or is something like that event, um, However, there's also such a thing as sort of, um, you know, sort of chronic trauma. So essentially, what that means is you have enough. It, it's sort of aligned with the um, construct of microaggressions, right? In a in a um, a, di- a completely different domain, it's a bunch of small things that add up to a limited uh, resilience, a limited remaining ability to cope with highly stressful things that happen. And so, you know, people who live in really low resource communities, people who are part of marginalized groups may experience the sort of chronic low level trauma that ultimately adds up to essentially the same symptoms that we see in somebody who experienced um, some sort of an assault Or a natural disaster that took away um, everything that they care about. You know, so it could be any number of things. Um when I think about PTSD, obviously we could go through the whole checklist of symptoms and you know mentally check off which ones uh fit or don't for any given case. However, looking at it more broadly, PTSD is a disorder of avoidance, period. So if you if you think of it as this kind of cycle. Where you've got this horrible event and whatever that horrible event or events was, um, it changes your worldview in some way. It changes the way that you think about how safe the world is, how good the world is, how able to keep yourself safe you are, how able to keep someone else safe you are. And it and it makes this kind of really meaningful shift in something that feels really central to how you approach the world, how you think about the world, how you feel about the world. And so from that, you see that people will um, number one, be hypervigilant. They're always looking for signs of something similar to happen again, or evidence that actually, that's right. I really, I figured it out. I'm not as safe as I thought I was before my disaster happened um so the hypervigilance and then simultaneously the avoidance of anything that reminds you of the trauma so that could be things in your own head like thoughts about the trauma but it could also or conversations about whatever happened it could be avoiding actual sort of physical triggers like that that may remind you um of the thing that happened there's always weird ones that that stick sometimes they have to do with smell one of my um fascinating early learnings with um, service members was how much the smell of barbecue was sometimes a trigger for folks who were serving in more recent conflicts, because there's just so much barbecue food all the time. <laughs> that this, this, this specific smell would trigger, you know, it's much more likely that than the things that we tend to think about, like, oh, fireworks may, you know, trigger somebody to, to feel like they're under yeah. fire. Well, the fireworks actually, lights. yeah. Yeah. Fireworks actually, I mean, at least in my neighborhood, not that common, but barbecue, a lot more common. So Mm -hmm. it really depends. Sometimes it's stuff that you don't necessarily expect. And unfortunately, the third piece of this, which makes the other two much worse is the constant intrusive thoughts about the trauma. So you've got these thoughts that keep coming that you don't want, that then you're trying to avoid constantly. And then that keep you hypervigilant and looking out for the next sign that you're really in danger. It's it's a, it's a cyclical problem and the only way to break that cycle, um, well, I'm going to stop myself there. Some people do spontaneously resolve. So over, if you look two years out from a trauma, about half of people, depending on the kind of trauma, there's a little mm-hmm. bit of differentiation, but about half of people will have just resolved through the passage of time. So I think that that's actually pretty hopeful in a way is yeah. You don't have to run out and get care if it seems like, you know, one day you start realizing, Actually, I wasn't thinking about that as much today as I have been. That's the sign that things are improving. Um, but for but for the other half of people, um, really the only way out is through. So you have to, um, you know, attend to all of the pieces that naturally you're feeling like avoiding. And it's it's a, to be honest, you know, difficult process. It's not pretty, um, but, you know, when I used to treat PTSD, I felt very, it was, it was very gratifying work because it's treatable because you really can be pretty sure with the incredible psychotherapy technologies. And when I say technologies, I mean uh, not using technology, but actually right. the, the interventions that we use now, incredible, incredible data, almost better than than probably anything else other than panic disorder, yeah. So very treatable. That's the good news.
1: That that is excellent news. But because you you mentioned technology, I want to pivot a little bit to that and and talk about what we typically think of as technology, um, and you know what we're using to connect now and and to get this message out to to our listeners. But from the very beginning of your career, you've been working at the intersection of mental health and technology. Can you talk generally about the evolution of mental health? And behavioral health, and and the technology and apps around that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, um, when I started in this space, I, I was a I was a full time healthcare provider, seeing patients, you know, over the course of a whole workday. Um, and uh, there are incredible psychotherapists out there. I think that my own internal metronome, I don't think that I was actually well-suited to, um, sitting quietly all day, every day. <laughs> so that's, that was a, that started with, you know, honestly, it's like a necessity is the mother of, of invention. Right. Yep. So for yep. me, there were, there were two key record sort of things to recognize after fortunately, unfortunately spending, you know, a million years in graduate school, um, and coming out a doctor. Um, So the first was that it wasn't a fit for me temperamentally to be doing this all day, every day. The second was that a lot of the stuff that I was doing was very repetitive. You know, you don't get stronger by reading about lifting weights, which doesn't exist, right? You have to actually, I mean, to start with, you should read about it. You should figure out the do's don'ts, right? Don't hurt yourself. However, at the end of the day, if you actually want to improve your strength, you have to start lifting. You have to start sort of doing that graded um, physical work. And psychotherapy is no different. There is a piece of it that's about insights and, and me helping you to see, Kyle, here's the thing that I'm seeing about your life, or here's my vision of your life worth living that maybe you're not able to see right now that we can push towards together. But that's not most of it. Most of it is the boring practice work, just like weightlifting, right? And so mm-hmm. that practice, what I was seeing was this is there's is no way that this is the most scalable way to do this. I'm spending all day helping folks to practice a finite set of things. And my undergraduate education had been and included um symbolic systems, which was sort of a computer science uh, and psychology kind of interdisciplinary thing that they only have at at the one school, as far as I know. Um, But I had that background to go back to and say, this has to be partially doable with um, with technology. Now, now in 2021, this is a no-duh idea. Nobody's impressed with the creativity of that idea. Back then, it was a much more interesting thought and actually simultaneously to be having it, Congress had it. So Congress, um, in recognition of the enormous number of recent returnees from Iraq and Afghanistan who were in need of additional support, they were not seeking naturally um, for reasons associated with stigma or or um, logistics, any of a number of reasons. Um they, they put billions of dollars. So Congress decided to put billions of dollars towards uh, supporting the emotional health and resilience building for those recent returnees. Um, and so, you know, I started there in the Department of Defense. Uh, building for active duty service members as we tried to offer them the help that they needed without pushing them beyond what they were willing to do um, and engaging in, in face-to-face care. Interestingly, we were trained. Um, so we got this money from Congress and then we had to figure out, okay, what's what are the best practices here? We're building a new field. So how do we do it? And we had to go to NASA and NASA um, actually were the very first ones to deploy remote mental health care. They were deploying it to space. Um, because when space missions fail, um, it's almost always because of interpersonal conflict between astronauts. So, which I joke, like, and now after a year in my home with my husband and children, I get it.
1: (laughs) Small space, you know, same people every day. Absolutely.
2: Exactly. So, um, you know we grew from there so i was doing web and then uh games because video games are so important yeah. in the service member community and just understanding how to leverage game dynamics in order to provide that same sort of educational and practice opportunities um for better mental health and resilience and then moved on to um mobile because it turns out what is better suited i i think that Every time I read about some incredible leaps forward in mobile technology, you know, for example, I saw recently um, folks using their iPhones to do um, blood analysis in some parts of Africa where it's harder to do to get the right tools and stuff on Mm -hmm. site. That's incredible, incredible work. I have to say what I have to do, what what my field has to do is much, much easier than that because I don't need to, I don't need any biometric data from you. I I don't need um, anything other than words and media and you inputting those same kinds of things. And so mental health is a really natural fit for especially a mobile context, but really any technology so that we can, and, and incredibly, because we started in 2006 And then um, have been sort of building ever since Um, in the context of of Department of Defense and VA. I don't know if people know that those are the largest academic medical training opportunities in our whole country. The VA trains more uh, mental health practitioners than any other uh, type of facility in the country. And so, you know, it's very academically focused. So we also have a ton of research to the point where... I have had the thought, I have had the thought many times since um, uh, since this pandemic started that I just feel so grateful that we spent a decade preparing for this moment, at least a decade, right? We were ready. Um, we've done the studies, we know what works. We know how to get providers to move on things, which is its own. Sort of, there's a whole field of study called implementation science about how to get that that includes how to get providers to change their behavior. Um, So we were we were ready for it in a way that I I will feel endlessly grateful for. I think until the end of my days.
1: Yeah, I I remember a recent conversation. You said you're glad that if we're going to have a pandemic, it happened now instead of ten years ago when we weren't ready, when we didn't have this technology across all sectors of our lives. Um, not just just healthcare. Um, well, I want to talk about one specific app that that is out there and that we, we have a history with for our members, and that's My Strength. Um, and it is a mental health app, and I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit more about it because you've been working on it. Our members have had access to it since 2016. You've had a history with it. Um, and I will say that we've had, we over the last year, we've seen an incredible increase in the number of our members who have engaged with the app. We we had um, more than 160 sign up in December alone following a single email from us to membership. So more than 700 people were engaging with it last year. And they were coming to it through, through um, seeking help with depression, anxiety, and stress, but also with um, parenting with PTSD, with pain, um, and with, in small numbers, COVID-19 identifying that as one of the reasons they were looking for some, um, some support. So can you tell us generally about my strength and what your history is with it and, and how, how members can use it?
2: Yeah. So I'm so glad to hear about your utilization. I actually hadn't heard that piece. And that's awesome because the point is to provide the tool and then, um, to have folks engage with it, however they need to, and to supplement their, the rest of their care or to, or to take a first step. So, um, my strength is a commercial, um, tool that, that is, um, that was, around for over a decade at this point, um, started as a freestanding company and then was acquired by Livongo, um, a company focused on chronic medical conditions, and now is part of, of Teladoc, which is the global leader in virtual healthcare. So we have um, continued to grow our scope. However, the foundation of the My Strength product is the same as ever, which is this tool is for people to self-manage their symptoms, whatever mental health needs they've got, whether they are small and they're just dealing with the stress of day-to-day life, which is all of us under the best case scenario, or if they're really significant and they have a diagnosable uh, clinical condition, we, we um, have programming for 13 different High prevalence conditions, so depression, anxiety, insomnia, you know, substance use, so you name it, it's all in there. Um, and really, we see my strength as um, primarily a self-guided tool. However, success for us is um, really in two different um, buckets. The first is do people's symptoms get reduced? So. We look for people engaged with the My Strength product, whether they um, are using our full length program. So, for example, I want to do a full length depression program, or they could just be using sort of the bite sized, snackable, um, uh, in the moment coping tools for navigating difficult moments or for keeping, you know, doing a mindfulness practice, that kind of thing. So, there are a variety of ways for people to use the product for whatever is a fit. For their needs in their life. Um, But regardless, one big outcome is we want them to feel better. That's top of the top of the list, right? We just want people to feel better in this moment and and going forward. But then the second outcome that we see as really successful is, do we help people who need mental health care uh, engage in it? So we want to increase people's so I'm going to be a little psychologist here here for a second, but self efficacy for coping that's probably. I
1: think steps. we can, can figure that out from the context. Yeah, we can figure yeah. it out.
2: Okay, yeah. so we want we want we want people to you know it's a, there's a vocabulary test at the end, so be ready. Um Excellent. the uh, we want people to feel self efficacy means I I feel like I can do something um, to feel like they can manage their own struggles, whatever they are are and whatever the scope and and size of them is. Second best is uh, if they need help, can we demystify treatment? Can we help them access treatment if they need it? Can we provide a sort of appetizer for those who need more so that they can move on to the thing that maybe they were putting off, or they didn't realize that they needed, or they didn't realize that there was actually help for you know, we're all stressed right now for some of us, that stress is actually in the domain. Like it's, it's risen to the level of an actual diagnosable condition, depression, anxiety, PTSD, as you identified insomnia, these are problems that are really, really prevalent right now, even more than usual when they're, you know, at least 20% of the population. Um, so, uh, I don't even know what we're up to now. I don't think those studies are absolutely complete. Um, It sounds like, uh, you know, one in four people with COVID are having ongoing mental health um, concerns following the condition. So even just from COVID itself, we're seeing an exacerbation, but in any case, Um, we know that 60% of people who need care are not actually ever showing up at that first appointment. That was the problem we were trying to solve initially for service members. And it's a problem broadly in American society. Um, Stigma is one piece. And I think it's the piece that we talk about the most, but there's actually just a huge shortage of providers. Um, There are not enough mental health providers in this country to serve the mental health needs of our fellow citizens. And so, um, you know, this is a a way of extending care to those who, number one, may need it right now. It's always available on your own schedule and you can use it in the way that you need to. It's very flexible. It's very personalized. Um, and simultaneously providing you a sort of a gateway to additional care if you need it.
1: And and I, I want to note that it is based on and I think you touched on this some you know evidence based psychotherapy models like cognitive behavioral therapy acceptance and commitment therapy and even mindfulness acceptance and we had some people who who entered uh, my strength simply for mindfulness exercises and so it's it's got something for everybody who feels that they need that that support.
2: I think that's right. I think um, I feel. I have such mixed feelings about where we are as a field in terms of digital mental health care, which is obviously where I've spent the past 15 years, Um, because in some ways, you know, we should let a thousand flowers bloom. There are so many products available now, even just in the public facing app stores that, you know, you can go on there. If you search for any emotion or brain related thing, you will come back with tens of thousands of options and the challenge there is, there's just so much noise, and the average consumer has absolutely no idea what works. And beyond that, they don't necessarily know what's really wrong. Is it insomnia, or is it stress? You know, uh, insomnia as a symptom of depression, like you know, is mindfulness what I need or is mindfulness just a comfortable option and what I actually need is some real deep cognitive behavioral therapy, right? Or is it DBT or any of the different sort of approaches that are all um, on uh, my strength? And so because of our clinical team's really deep understanding of, of what a real patient, of what a real person with mental health needs looks like, Um, that we take that and we say, these people are not experts in self-diagnosing or making their own treatment plans. Everybody's doing the best that they can. If you don't happen to know a psychologist, like my friends do who you can call and say, I need help, but I don't know where to start. Um, you know, or my kid needs help, but I don't know where to start, or I don't know if I need help. I'm just so stressed right now. Um, then you know, a lot of people are just out of luck. Um, and so my strength fills that gap where we are the digital front door. We're broad digital front door. We accept all comers. Doesn't matter if you're clinical or subclinical or what the problem is. We have these incredible sort of uh, machine learning and AI-based algorithms um, crafted in collaboration with clinic uh, clinicians and scientists in order to direct you in the right direction. So you may come into my strength saying, I've got an anger management problem. And we may say, hang on there. It's actually depression because sometimes, especially in men, depression can look like irritability and anger. So, um, you know, we really have a tremendous amount of intelligence built into the system to make it as expansive as possible and make it kind of the easy button so that you don't have to navigate all the noise of of the market. There are incredible products out there, but the noise itself is
1: now the problem. Excellent. And, and I will just say for FSBP members who are listening and want to check out MyStrength, they can go to myStrength.com, select sign up and enter the access code FSBP to get started. So Dr. Julia Hoffman, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, thank you for taking us through, you know, the last year and um, trauma and mental wellness and, my strength, all of it together in such a, such a great way. Um, we really appreciate this. We hope to have you back sometime in the future to continue our conversation about mental wellness, but for now, thank you very much for, for your time today.
2: Thank you so much. And thank you for offering my strength. I'm delighted to hear that it's been of use to you, um, and your folks, and we are excited to continue to partner and just, you know, keep pushing towards a healthier, more resilient world.
1: Excellent. Thanks again. Thanks again to Dr. Julia Hoffman, from, VP of Mental Health Strategy from Teladoc uh, for joining us today and for her discussion of My Strength. Once again, My Strength is available at www.mystrength.com um, and enter code FSBP. It is available to members age 13 and over. We have a number of other programs available for FSBP members. For a full listing, please visit our website at aspa.org and look for the 2021 FSBP brochure. You can find information there or by calling us at 202 833 4910 and speaking with a health benefits officer. You can also tune in to another episode later this month where we'll be talking about mental wellness and the program Able 2 with Dr. Bill Gillis from Aetna. This has been AFSPA Talks, a production of the American Foreign Service Protective Association. Comments in this episode are not intended as medical advice. Questions about your health should be directed to a health provider. All information offered in this podcast is meant to be educational. Should there be any discrepancy between information offered in the podcast and official plan documents for the Foreign Service Benefit Plan or other products offered by AFSPA, the policy provisions will prevail. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe to AFSPA Talks to catch our next episode. Please rate and review us on your favorite podcast app and share feedback with us on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Look for at AFSPA Cares. Thank you to Hannah Wolfhart for producing, editing, and mixing this episode. And we'll talk to you next time.